Want the same expert advice you get from the pros in the store while shopping online at DiscountTire.com? Meet Treadwell, your personal online tire guide that matches you with the perfect tire for your vehicle. Get your best match in one minute or less with Treadwell by Discount Tire. When it comes to buying your first home, everyone has questions. Can we even afford to buy a house right now? Well, I need to negotiate. How do I even negotiate? Luckily, a REMAX agent has answers. Hey, Brian, those are really good questions. They are? Thanks. It's my first time buying. I work with first-time buyers all the time. I got you. Remax agents have more experience than other real estate agents. Visit Remax.com or download the Remax app to find the right agent. The right agent can lead the way. Each office independently owned and operated. So, a year ago this week, I remember what I was doing. Um, I went on television and spoke confidently <laughs> about Hillary Clinton's upcoming victory. Um, I, uh, on election day, wore a nasty woman sweatshirt and my absolute loudest lipstick and huge sunglasses and walked down um, the street in New York City on my way to the MTV uh, election. I'm going to call it a party. It was intended to be an election night celebration. And uh, as a joke, we had a puppy pit, uh, you know, intended for for comfort. And um, the dancing and temporary tattoo part of our coverage turned out to be uh, a lot less, you know, used than the puppy pit. I, I went to the puppy pit several times. I wish that I could have a mobile puppy pit um, with me most of the time these days because it turns out that was just the beginning, right? A lot has happened uh, and not very much of it good. And what lies ahead with this administration is uncertain. But we do know a few things. Uh, one is that the history of our democracy has never been a simple story of linear progress. There have been setbacks before and at each turn, people have been willing to raise their voices to march and to vote. We can't defend our liberty or secure rights for immigrants, our trans brothers and sisters and others. Advance racial justice or ensure a woman's right to make decisions about her own body without the right to vote. The right to vote is the most important right that we possess. Yet lawmakers in many states are working to make it harder for everyone to cast a ballot with maybe some specific targets. As we gear up for the year ahead, I hope you'll join me in preserving the right to vote by getting involved in the ACLU's Let People Vote campaign. Visit vote.peoplepower, all one word, .org. That's vote.peoplepower.org. Help the ACLU, help us defend the foundation of our democracy, the right to vote. Hi, I'm Anna Marie Cox. Welcome to With Friends Like These, a show about unlikely alliances and uncomfortable conversations. And proud to say today, as usual, we have both. Our uncomfortable conversation has to do with poverty and morality. And I'm going to have it with Liz Brunig, who is a friend of the show, a friend of the pod, uh, and definitely a comrade. Um, she writes a lot about class and religion. And we're going to deconstruct a piece that kind of obsessed 
both of us uh, called The White Minstrel Show from Kevin D. Williamson at National Review. And it's also um, a really good excuse to talk about the psychology and morality behind the tax plan, um, which sort of takes as its target, as Kevin D. Williamson does, the undeserving poor. But first, a with friends like these classic segment uh, with Rick Wilson, friend and comrade of the show also. He is a Republican strategist and ne'er-do-well, and he talks to us about what the Trump indictments mean for the future of his administration. He is definitely more optimistic than I am about it, and I guess he would know. Anyway, thanks for listening, and here is the show. Rick? I'm here, Anna. How are you? Oh my gosh, I am, I am good. How are you today? You know, I'm dancing the dance I call the Duschenfreude dance um, over Milo getting uh, shit-canned by Robert Mercer and Robert Mercer divorcing Breitbart. It's just been sort of a delicious day. It's It's been a, a week of Duschenfreude, I think. Is it, it has. It, it, it really has. And, uh, <laughs> you know, I was told I was told reliably by many, many people that uh, Hillary Clinton and uh, and the Podestas were going to be arrested and indicted this week. I kept hearing that on the on the uh, on the Trump media and somehow it didn't happen. And yet Trump's former campaign chairman, a senior foreign policy advisor and uh, and 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 uh, were uh, were indicted, arrested and indicted. And and one of them even confessed already. I mean, this is it. It's it's just the narrative that that existed on Fox News last week and on the Infowars side of the fence just didn't come to pass. Mysterious. I don't know, Rick. I think President Hillary is really in trouble. I think this this could mean impeachment for her. I think her Asia trip is going to be really vital this week, and we're going to see <laughs> if she can avoid avoid a stumble that leads us into nuclear war. Because you know, I'm just really worried about Hil- about Hillary and uh, and the reckless administration she's been pursuing so far. We could we could probably go on like this. I, I let's talk about it though. This has been so uh, you know. So when the indictments came down, not the indictments when when uh, Manafort and Gates. Um, we're going to be arrested. Um, my husband and I actually turned to Fox News because we're like, this is going to be good, you know? Right. And it was like a Twilight Zone experience. Uh, it's, this has been covered, but it was maybe the question I have for you is you still are you still talk to these people, right? Like people who are mm-hmm. who are in that bubble. Right. I do. I do. What do they think is happening? Like, well, what is that the, experience? The, the the people that that believed this week that Podesta and Hillary were really going to be indicted and that, and that they've proven that Hillary conspired with Russia and all this other stuff, 99% of the people that I speak with who are elected or are, you know, Republican operatives, they know it's a complete avalanche of bullshit. They're completely cognizant of this fact. There is a percentage of them. Who believe that they're engaged right now in in ideological warfare? So anything that will that will change the subject and anything that will will remove Trump from the immediate pressure of of his self imposed uh, troubles uh, is 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 fair game. It's a it's a even for me. It's been a pretty fundamentally shocking moment of of you know how many of them are willing to admit you know they're just bullshitting they're just trying to get past this this train wreck and they're just trying to to find a way to you know move this over to Hillary uh and and turn it into a uh, a scandal that doesn't exist the problem for all of them Anna is 
Robert Mueller doesn't care. Mm. He doesn't care what Trump tweets. He doesn't care what's on Fox. He doesn't care what's on Infowars. He doesn't care what Roger Stone is ranting about on the street corner. You know, these these things are irrelevant to him. They're 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 not what he worries about on a day-to-day basis. And he's just working his way methodically through this. So, you know, they're going to keep fooling their audience for as long as they can. Um, and and it's 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 tragic how many of these people are deceived by this and, and who are willing to, to you know, try to ignore a, a train that's coming at Donald Trump at a million miles an hour. Well, I, but I worry because I think that, you know, information warfare works. We, we've seen that. that. That's what happened in this campaign. Uh, also, Hillary didn't go to Wisconsin and ignored minority voters. But <laughs> information warfare worked also. Sure. And I, you know, when we speak of what's on Fox News being an alternate reality, again, this is pretty well covered um, by, by media critics that if you turned on Fox almost any time this week, you really were living in the Hillary Clinton administration universe. Sure. You were getting coverage of that Russia scandal. You were getting a, a case being built against Mueller for being head of the FBI when the deal to buy the uranium company was was approved. I think that's the connection. Well, uh, yeah, that's that's what they're claiming is yes. the is the is the 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 thread to uh to 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 Hillary Clinton and Mueller and they're and look Disqualifying Robert Mueller is absolutely vital for their case. Right. They're, they must they must eliminate him as a player on the field. The difficulty with that is the Uranium One case in particular. And look, when it first came out about two years ago, when I first heard about it, like everyone else, I was like, what the hell is this? What mm-hmm. What is going on here? And then, you know, peeled back the layers a little bit and and – Contrary to the uh, to the belief in the uh, on, on the kook right that this was Hillary Clinton personally, you know, steering a tanker full of uranium to Kamchatka, it turned out, in fact, it's a you know fairly disconnected set of issues. Um, the guy that gave them the money for the foundation no longer was involved with uranium one when he did it. You know, the licensing uh, approvals went through nine different government agencies, none of which were directly influenced by Hillary Clinton. Or the FBI. Or the, the FBI. Justice Department that has a seat on right. that advisory committee, not like the FBI. Right. The Energy yeah. Department, all these other all these other agencies and groups. So it turned out the thing was a complete, you know, farrago of 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 you know uh, excuses uh, and trying to 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 smear Robert Mueller by saying that he was connected to this in some way, and it it's just it, it's it's a robust lie, and and it doesn't make it ineffective for some of these people who will look to any possible solace, given the fact that you know the president's campaign chairman was arrested and indicted and the president's senior foreign policy advisor was involved in a Russian intelligence operation and soliciting support from a hostile foreign government um, yeah. and, and, has, and has confessed to these things and confessed to lying to the FBI about them. I, I'm just trying to imagine again, like if you know, Axelrod <laughs> was – was convicted of these charges and Tommy Vitor, let's say, <laughs> turned right, out to right. be a Russian spy. No, I uh, believe that the Fox would be covering it slightly differently. I mean, and I know Axelrod is closer to Obama than 
than Manafort is. I believe Fox would have spun off an entire separate network called Fox Stops the Red Menace. And <laughs> and it would be 24 hours a day of pitchforks and torches. Um, but again, the the desire to protect Donald Trump is the ultimate compromise of every Republican ideal these days. No matter what happens, they are going to find some way to backflip and excuse and blame shift to try to make the the inexcusable excusable and the unforgivable forgivable. And and I, I try to remind my Republican friends of the two key numbers from 1974. That's 49 and 8. 49 House seats were lost in 1974. Eight Senate seats were lost in 1974. Um, and in 1973, almost every one of those people who lost a seat was out saying, oh, Watergate's a horseshit scandal. It means nothing. This is all just made up Washington, D.C. talk, and it's the liberals trying to take down Richard Nixon and da 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 We are, we, the, the, we, we are as a nation, walking into that right now, and, and the scope of this scandal is – you know, I, I said to a lot of different Republican friends of mine the other day, I said, do you think this was the worst day? Do you think mm-hmm. this was as bad as it gets? This was the opening act. This was the this was the amuse-bouche of this thing. This was a uh, just a, a little preview of what's coming. I mean, Robert Mueller has Donald Trump's financial records and his taxes, and they have all the comms from the campaign across the board. And an experienced prosecutor like Mueller doesn't lead out with every crown jewel he's got. He sent a clear you start with the low cards. You take the easy, you take the easy hands first. Right. And these people who said, Oh, Papadopoulos was a volunteer who fetched coffee, blah, blah, blah. Well, you know how they roll up big section eight forty eight drug cases. They arrest the runners and the mid-level guys. And then the mid-level guys give up the distributors and the distributors give up the, the guys at the wholesale level. And the wholesale levels give up the guys who are importing the stuff. And and they you work your way up the chain, and that's exactly what's going to happen here. Is they're going to work their way up the chain, and and the pressure that's going to be brought on a lot of these other folks who were involved in this decision, um, it's going to ramify out. And look, I'm proving today my everything Trump touches dies theory. You know, Sam Clovis has withdrawn his nomination. Hmm. Um, he, he even looks like a cartoon villain, Sam Clovis. Sam, Sam Clovis, <laughs> I swear, he, he, his mustache should be a lot longer and he should have a couple of pistols. <laughs> He's I'm Sam, Sam Clovis, dammit. <laughs> you know, I want to stop you for a second because you sound so confident. I want to try and like leech some of that from you because, you know, I keep coming back to watching Fox News and talking to my in-laws. Sure. And I think if, if Mueller... Marched into the White House and handcuffed. I, I, you can't really, you can't prosecute the president, but, but, uh, I don't know um, who who would be the highest up that might go down. Um, Jared, uh, you know Pence. I don't. So if he had it, he had him cold, and and, and frog marched him out of the White House. My in laws would be like, well, you know, this was all, this is all, this is all the, you know, Democrats' plan the whole time. And you there's know, if, nothing to this. Uh, and it, and if it, as long as it wasn't Trump himself, they'd also say this wasn't connected to Trump. The problem with the Democratic Party, I think, is the Brazil uh, piece today illustrated, oh, yeah. is for the most part, they can't organize their way out of a two-car motorcade. I mean, this is just – this is not a party that is holistically good at great conspiracies. They get lost on a two-person bicycle. Is that what you're Pre- trying to Pretty say? much. They're, they're not good at great conspiracies. I mean, I seem to recall being told – that the Kenyan Muslim communist sleeper agent Barack Obama 
was going to impose Sharia law on the country and uh, and then installed George Soros as the high overlord to insist on mandatory abortions and and you know all the rest of the things that would collapse society around us. And they really never got there. They're not that good at it. Um, so yes, a lot of people on the right, a lot of people on the Republican side will say, um, this is all made up. It's false. It's fake. You know, because there are two silos in this country now of news and, and the, the, the cliche for years and years for Republicans was, you know, our ideas are so good and our, they're so persuasive and they're so strong. If only we had a fair shake. If only we could get people to listen to what we want to do in terms of limited government and the rule of law and lower taxes and these things and that thing. And all we need is a media outlet that would finally give give a fair (sighs) hearing to both sides because our ideas are great. Well, it turned out that was a complete line of shit. They don't want a fair set of ideas. They want a funhouse mirror version of the worst possible excesses of, you know, their, their fever dreams about the liberal news media. They want something that is completely detached from reality. And look, Fox has a tremendous amount of power in that ecosystem. There's no de- there's no debating the fact that they do set the agenda for an awful lot of Republicans. And that ecosystem of Fox and talk radio with Rush Limbaugh and, and Mark Levin and all these other guys um, and, the, and the online infrastructure of the crazies of Breitbart and InfoWars and, and – you know, the stupidest man on the internet gateway pundit, all these guys, they have a fervent readership that, that is post-fact and, and post-truth, but they, and even the ones that know it, even the ones that are playing the game, they don't care. They love this. They love having a, 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 a loud megaphone. And even if it's bullshit, and even if they know it's bullshit, um, they feel like, eh, we're finally getting, pushing back against the left. Mm. Okay, so what I'm hearing, I'm trying again, I'm trying to like leech off some of your your surety here and your optimism. Are you saying that that's just a minority and that if, let's say, Mueller builds his case just solid, right? Like no even mortar between the bricks, just like a solid wall of evidence proving we don't need to even see like collusion is technically not illegal, right? So let's say, right. um, but there is quid pro quo would be illegal, right? If they were mm-hmm. showing... Uh, we will give you this for that, like the Ukrainian, uh, you know, compromise in the, in the Republican platform or some other, you know, actual quid pro quo. Um, most Americans aren't in in the Fox News silo, so so it would be taken as uh, evidence that that Trump needs to go. Like, do you think? I mean, because I look at Congress. <laughs> And I don't know, right? Like, I don't see Republicans. Well, yeah. I like, mean, look, and I've said this time and again, I've made variations on this joke. There is absolutely no way, even if even if Robert Mueller comes out with videotape of Donald Trump, um, you know, taking sacks of cash from Vladimir Putin, that they will impeach this man. It right, will okay. not happen. But right. But right now right now Trump is I mean this week was a body blow for Trump and as much as the Republicans are trying to say la 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 we're not listening it's only about tax cuts they're hang- saying hello right. they yes. know how bad this was they recognize it they get it mm-hmm. um and and they recognize that once this tax cut thing is passed good or bad up or down that it's going to be much harder to have a single unifying agenda item to 
to to throw out there and say, we can't talk about Trump and Russia because we've got to do X. They mm-hmm. failed on everything else. You know, what, what's next? The infrastructure bill? Not happening. It, it's all the entire legislative agenda is dead. A, a Senate chief of staff this morning and I were emailing back and forth and he said, the legislative process is now what we do between Trump shitting the bed every day. Mm-hmm. And and they all recognize it. So the other part of this is at some point, even the stubbornest of Trump supporters, you know, in that, let's call it that 33% that's still sticking with the guy. Um, those, even the most stubborn of them um, will become disenchanted. They'll stick with him publicly, but the the fervor is, is already dying down mm-hmm. and, and the consequences are already starting to sort of accumulate um, as you see, you know, Republicans un- struggling and retiring in, in large numbers and, and just basically saying, look, it's not worth it for me anymore to keep this fight going. So I, I, I and I do think there will be a point where the weight of the evidence can't be denied. And, you know, look, the average Fox reader or Fox viewer is not going to go out and read the indictment uh, of, of, of Manafort. They're not going to go out and read the, the confession uh, and the plea deal of Papadopoulos. But these things aren't the end of the line. They're the beginning. And we're going to see this pile up and pile up and pile up. And, and you know, it should be presumed that Robert Mueller, who, as the Manafort uh, uh, documents showed, has a deep ability to go and do forensic financial stuff. Donald Trump should presume every day that Robert Mueller has his taxes and they're going to become part of this record. I mean, how could case. he not have them, right? He, yeah, I mean, oh, exactly. It, it would be malpractice, and he seems he's he's not. <laughs> he seems like a pretty thorough dude. Yeah, one one thing about Bob Mueller <laughs> that uh, that methodical is 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 not something you would uh, you would miss about this guy. He is yeah. He is very very experienced in walking yeah. through super complex prosecutions. He writes a memo to take a shit. Pretty much. Pretty yeah. much. HelloFresh is the meal delivery service that makes cooking more fun so you can focus on the whole experience, not just the final plate. Each week, HelloFresh creates new, delicious recipes with step-by-step instructions designed to take around 30 minutes for everyone from novices to seasoned home cooks short on time. They source the freshest ingredients measured in exact quantities needed so there's no food waste, and they deliver it right to your doorstep in a recyclable, insulated box for free, all for less than $10 a meal. Plus, HelloFresh employs two full-time registered dietitians on staff who follow each recipe to ensure it's nutritionally balanced. I have had HelloFresh for a little while now, and I will back up a few things about it. One is it definitely takes 30 minutes or less. This may not mean as much to the kind of people who use cooking to unwind, uh, but with my husband and myself, uh, food is good for unwinding. The cooking part, uh, we we both just kind of want to get past a lot of the time, especially if we have some stressful or busy days. Um, the cooking is a nice intermediate step to the unwinding, um, but you don't want it to take too long because you're getting hangry. So 30 minutes or less and also delicious and also nutritionally balanced. Um, some other meal kits uh, if you look at their nutritional uh, values, you're going to be a little disappointed if you're trying to watch your fats, sugars, salts, etc. HelloFresh is definitely good for you, but you would have to read the ingredients to know that. Um, it doesn't necessarily taste good for you. It tastes delicious. 
So right now, my listeners can get $30 off the first week of HelloFresh by going to HelloFresh.com and entering codes WITHFRIENDS30. That's HelloFresh.com and enter code WITHFRIENDS30 for $30 off your first week. What I'm hearing from you is that the evidence will be inescapable. Congress may not do anything, but that that bill will come due in the midterms. Yeah, well, the bill's going to come due in the midterms, but it's also going to come due in the fact that it's going to be increasingly difficult to accomplish anything. Donald Trump has already proven several times he can't close deals with Congress. (laughs) Sorry, just laughing because, yes, that is in fact what – I mean – And and that's before – that's before uh, Bob Mueller started the actual process that we're in now. That was before – and, and it's already also been shown that Trump's mania uh, about the Russia story and about the Russia issue is a huge driver in his behavior. And, and so the difficulty for Congress without, a, without any top cover from a, from a White House they can work with um, and, and with the almost certain guarantee that no matter what agenda item they want to pursue – Donald's going to get up in the morning, sit on the golden toilet in in the in the uh, executive uh, uh, residence, and tweet some crazy shit that's going to blow the agenda up for the entire day. Yeah. Speaking of tweeting crazy shit, I'm going to shift the conversation just a little bit, which is as a as a law enforcement supporter yourself, rule of law kind of guy, classic conservative. Let's say Trump tweeting about the terrorist attack must have uh, bothered you a bit. Well, it did for two reasons. And the first is, and as he as he sort of cleaned up today, I, you could tell that some grownups had gotten to his Twitter. Um, yeah. You know, if you really wanted to ensure that this guy got the death penalty for committing, uh, for murdering eight people, one of the first 101 things you don't do as president is tweet about the guy getting the death penalty. <laughs> you, yeah. You've instantly given his defense team a, a whole series of outs. Um and 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 the the Gitmo thing. This was, of course, because look, Trump has fan service for his base is the centrality of Trump now. Okay, he can't do anything else except take care of his base and 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 you know stroke them. Mm-hmm. So because of that, you know that's why he's tweeting about the death penalty and Gitmo. Well, you know, look, the guy's not going to Gitmo. If you want to prosecute him, the way to do it. Statistically speaking, uh, <laughs> is to to put a federal prosecutor on his ass because uh, you know, there's a whole lot of these assholes who have committed terrorism in this country or who've wanted to commit terrorism in this country. You know where they are now? Florence Supermax in in Florence, Colorado, in prison for life. Mm-hmm. We're actually pretty good at putting terrorists in jail for the rest of their days, and and. We're That's g- one of the most successful prosecutions you can do, apparently. Yeah, I've, I've read. And, and, and statistically and speaking, we've gotten really good at it um, because a these guys are mostly sloppy, you know, jerk offs. Um, B uh, the, the 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 federal prosecutors have a raft of intelligence they can use um, to make these cases, uh, and and the military tribunals are just it's a shit show. I mean, it's a it's a huge mess. Uh, We could spend spend an hour on on how the military tribunals have kind of fallen apart. But we've been doing this uh, down there in Gitmo since uh, two thousand and and three, I guess, and uh, or two. Haven't haven't made much progress. And uh, yeah, there's still a whole bunch of guys uh, hanging around. And his comments on the judicial system, uh, also, again, as a conservative, 
must have appalled you. Yes, it, it did appall me because um, I recognize- to, the, to review, if people aren't familiar, he called it a joke, right. a disgrace. Um, it, it really, like I was trying to explain to my husband, like why that's bad. And I was like, well, do you like a democracy? <laughs> yeah, <laughs> you know, I, like one branch of government attacking another, what, and, undermining and, another. And one of the fundamental underpinnings of conservative yeah. belief is that our constitutional system exists in an atmosphere where the rule of law is central. And, and the rule of law is something Donald Trump is terrified of. Mm-hmm. So this wasn't just about the terrorist attack. He's also trying to diminish confidence in one of our fundamental institutions, and that's that's the ju- the judicial system. And because of that, uh, you know, I saw that as a much bigger and nastier attack than I think some people did. But he's trying to diminish the, like I said, the confidence of Americans um, in the courts. And for his own purposes, yes. for actually to this actually connects it correct. back to correct to protect his own Mueller to protect his own um, uh, his own exposure that he's got, and to sort of try to prep the battlefield to say, oh, Mueller's just a corrupt part of the swamp. That's not he's not really pursuing a legal case. It's all about Hillary Clinton because he loves mm-hmm. Hillary Clinton, and you know the rule <laughs> of law only exists um, in their heads uh, when it applies to somebody else. Mm-hmm. I'm. <laughs> Again, like you seem, your schadenfreude is stronger than mine, I think, and your your optimism is stronger than mine. I just get concerned because it may be that the truly siloed Fox News Trumpist true believers are a minority, and they technically, they literally are a minority in yes. this country. Uh, and I do think, I do think of that 33%, mm-hmm. of half of that 33% are the absolute dead enders. Yeah. They're the absolute, they would, you know, if Donald Trump said, go set yourself on fire to show your, show your love for me, they'd walk outside and pour gasoline on themselves. <laughs> and so those 15%. First the NFL hats and then. <laughs> right, right. You know, the, the, those people are, 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 you know, they, they will deny till the very last dog dies. They could see any evidence they wanted and, you know, and they would either have never seen the evidence because they watch Fox um, mm-hmm. or. They would believe there's some baroque, elaborate conspiracy that was was generated um, by George Soros and Barack Obama in a secret underground mosque to uh, destroy America. And mm. they they they're going to stick with till the very last. I think we've already reached basically the statistical bottom level of Republican, uh, uh, you know, non-Republican support. I don't. There's not a lot more to go. Um, at 33%, you are basically base only at this point and only really the hard base. And it's going to be tough. Like the, the boundary layers on polling like this, it, 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 the resistance levels start to increase going up or down. You can only get up to a certain point and then it gets really hard to get more popular. You can only go down to a certain point. It gets really hard to, to become less popular. And you think in the way that this will work out as far as the is Congress, because they're the only ones who can do anything about this, right? Unless, are you a 25th Amendment person? Because uh, as much as I'd like to believe that, that seems very, that's, well, again, we're through the looking glass. Anything can happen. I, I believe, so. I believe that the 25th Amendment exists. <laughs> um, I believe that this cabinet is composed of a, uh, a, a basically of a, of, of a, Toadies and true believers. Um, yeah, but, you know, and also, frankly, a sort of a platoon of chicken shits. I yeah, mean, the most, right. the most, 
the most I can come up with of people, if I woke them up out of a sound sleep and, and asked their real opinion, I could probably get you to four or five people in the cabinet that would say, yep, he's crazy. Um, that you'd have to wake him up in the middle of the night and shine a bright light in their pretty eyes. Pretty much, and, pretty much. And, you know. So the way this is going to work out, if it, if to your logic, is his popularity is going to be such a problem, his lack of popularity, mm-hmm. I should say, and his um, inability to lead is that Congress will be just have nothing. They'll be stuck on cleanup duty from now until the midterms. Right. And like every, they'll, they'll be just literally cleaning up his shit. Right. Every single day is going to be a worse day than the day before. And so they're not going to be able to go out and say, we're doing this exciting legislative package on this and this and this. You know why? Because, you know, it will be today, Bob Mueller interviewed so-and-so. The following new evidence was revealed today. And every reporter is going to go to Congress and say, hey, what do you think about this? Hey, what about what the president said? Hey, should the president be allowed to hang Bob Mueller in effigy? <laughs> All these things that, that – that, and, and, and I get how angry the members are. I get how angry they are because – all the things they've wanted to do for a generation are down the crapper. Yeah. And and they they there's no escaping there's no escaping the fact that that they were poorly prepared for the impact that Trump would have on the legislative process and on their and on their ambitions. Um they were poorly prepared to govern period. I'm not sure how much better they would be like under a, a Jeb Bush, quite honestly. Like, I mean, maybe you and I might, might, I, 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 I kind of like Jeb, but. I th- like- well, I, I will say this. I will say this. <laughs> the fact that for seven years, guys like them had guys like me make ads for them saying, we're going to repeal and replace Obamacare. Mm-hmm. I'm not a policy guy. I'm not a healthcare expert. You know what? When some super smart healthcare expert who is a member of the House of Representatives says to me, we're going to do this and this. I'm not really digging into the details of how we're going to do it. Uh, I just know, you know, the messages we're going to be we were going to be pushing, and and the fact of the matter was, after seven years, and they they dumped this lump of, uh, it's like, oh, let's pick all the least popular things we can do and throw them into one repeal bill. <laughs> you know, it's just it's malpractice on the policy side, um, and of course, the White House, you know, ended up setting a lot of that agenda too. Um, Again, because everything Trump touches dies, the first thing he did was go out and basically blow up the Obamacare repeal plan. Mm-hmm. Um, so, and then he put it back together and blew it up again. Right, like he exactly. kept on doing that. Like, exactly. and it, but I want to get back. So, so what happens in the midterms? It's not even so much that Democrats are going to be able to necessarily successfully have to successfully tie a member of Congress to Trump. You think that the sheer lack of like this is what I did for you, which is you know all House races are ultimately transactional, you bet. right? The Republicans will not be able to go back to their home, uh, you know, uh, district and say, I've done something for you. So right. you are really counting on Democrats to just basically be able to walk in a straight line. <laughs> Which, you know, honestly, <laughs> and that's, stay it's, honestly and, that's kind of a big goal for them. It is. Um, because the, the, uh, here's, the, here's one of the to things me. I think people really neglect. Democrats are really good at parts of politics. Mm-hmm. They're good at some things some of the time. Um, but they're holistically awful at it and, and they often find themselves not prepared for like doing simple one Oh one things like, you know, keeping the bank account full in the, in the national party, (laughs) (laughs) um, recruiting decent candidates, you know, all these. uh, So like I said, they're good at a lot of things, but sometimes the things they're good at 
make them forget about the things they should be good at as well. Hey, Rick, I got an idea. We're going to have to... We're going to wrap up, so I'm going to end this actually on a provocative note, oh. which is that you should uh, you should consider uh, you're, you're good at this stuff. Maybe some some Democrats in some congressional races could use your help. Um, I'm not saying I haven't gotten a phone call or two. All right, so good because I would say that you are good at that part of it. Uh, like I, you know about that part. I I, uh, I I know a thing or two about a thing or two. Yeah. So maybe if you could just like put some training <laughs> wheels on some of these Democratic candidates, you know, we'll I promise we will fight on the battlefield again, you and I. <laughs> All right. <laughs> but if you could just help get us over this this large shitty hump <laughs> and into the into the place where we can fight again. Into the promised you know. land of of constant ideological battles. I, I Yes. I, I would welcome that because it's, you know, it beats either having a president whose entire staff, friends, family, and infrastructure uh, under criminal investigation uh, or nuclear war. So, yeah. <laughs> Yes, it tops both of those. Um, I, I, for now, count you, again, as a not just a friend of the pod, but a comrade of the pod. Um, and who knows, perhaps perhaps in this in the post-Trump era, we'll be able to stay, stay friendly. Hey, friend. I hope so. All right. Oh, Thanks. So. so there's a ritual to leaving your home. You, uh, if you're me, you do a, a spot check as you walk out the door, do I have my phone? Do I have my keys? Do I have my wallet? Uh, and I am often thinking about a lot of other things. And um, I usually have forgotten something, I'll admit it. Uh, my husband gets after me all the time. Uh, he sometimes actually has to be the one to remind me to do the spot check. So you check the obvious places, kitchen pockets, uh, and then the weird places, um, bathroom, fridge, hamper. I, I have found my keys in the refrigerator. Um, I have found my phone, um, in the hamper. I have found, um, my, uh, iPad wedged between cushions. And where would I be without this stuff? I would be late and I'm often late to be honest, uh, cause I can't leave the house till I found everything. Eight years ago, Tracker changed all of that when they released their first tracking device. And now they've done it again with the all-new Tracker Pixel. With the Tracker Pixel, you never have to worry about losing your things again. It is the lightest Bluetooth tracking device on the market. You can put it on whatever you tend to lose, your keys, your wallet, even your cat. We actually have lost our cats uh, in the house. Um, They're indoor cats, of course. Um, But one of them, Leia, uh, is small and easily misplaced. She will misplace herself. So, you can put a tracker on your cat, and I probably should put one on Leia. When you misplace an item that has the tracker pixel attached, you can use your smartphone, and a 90 decibel alert will help you find it in seconds. It even has powerful LED lights, so you can find anything even in the dark. With the cat, you might not want to use the 90 decibel alarm. I think maybe the flashing would be the way to go with that. Now, if you lose your phone, just press your button on your tracker pixel, and the phone rings, even if it's on silent. You can locate your item if it's miles away because every Tracker user is part of the largest crowd locate network in the world. And with Tracker's 30-day money-back guarantee, you have truly nothing to lose. Go to thetracker.com slash friends to get 20% off any order. That's thetracker, T-R-A-C-K-R, no E, dot com slash friends for 20% off thetracker.com slash friends. Hi, Liz. Hi, how are you doing? Well, you know, considering <laughs> I'm all right, you know, in Trump adjusted terms, yeah. I'm okay. I mean, yeah, you yourself? Yeah, as good as it gets. 
Yep, that's that's also an acceptable answer. So I was thinking, you know, I asked you on originally to talk about a couple of pieces that came out actually now a week and a half ago. Kevin D. Williamson writing in the National Review about the, I even don't even like saying the name of this piece that he wrote, but the title is The White Minstrel Show. Right. Uh, and then you wrote a response to it because he did name check you in it. He did. And I I think the sort of overarching theme here is, you know, poverty morality, right? Right. And Kevin Williamson's piece is a lengthy attack on poor people. Right. Uh, which he actually really helpfully uh, separates uh, the working class from the underclass, although those aren't too socioeconomic distinctions, really. Right. You know? um, it's, uh, but I think he's doing a lot of work in doing that separation. And I was like, oh, gosh, we're going to talk about two pieces that are week and a half year old. Like, why are we doing that? And then I remembered we have this tax plan that's being debated right now. Right. And um, I think uh, it reflects a lot of the thinking, the thinking here uh, in Kevin's piece, which it's funny because he frames his whole piece as an attack on Trumpism, right? right? That that he says, well, help me out. Like it basically that the underclass, the white underclass is is uh, rude and crude. And um, basically I, that's all I can kind of, that's a good summation of it, rude and crude. Uh, right. Drug addicted, immoral. Unaccountable. Unaccountable. Yeah. Uh, and they're the people who like Trump. Right. Right. And, um, and he really does a lot of work to try and separate himself from from those people. And he kind of holds up this classical conservatism as being the honorable kind of conservatism where uh, intellectuals are valued and whatnot. <laughs> yeah. Um, <laughs> <laughs> yeah. But you know what? Um, if Trumpism is supposed to be about overvaluing the underclass, this tax plan doesn't do that, really. <laughs> no, no. I mean, um <laughs> So simply the distinction that Williamson wants to make has to do with, you know, you have means on the one hand and then you have sort of cultural appetites and attitudes on the other. And then you have this third category, which he does not distinguish um, as a third and separate category, but I do. And that is sort of moral rectitude. Um, so, you know, if you if you break humanity down into those three categories and like a big matrix and you say, well, people are located on one end of the spectrum of material wealth and then they're they're located on one end of the spectrum of cultural appetites. Do they like lowbrow, highbrow? Do they like intellectuals and elites or do they detest them? And then a third category, which is and I emphasize distinct is, you know, do people uh, are they morally upright or not? So what Williamson seems to suggest is that there's like a correlation among all three that, um, you know, if you are, you know, very, very extremely poor um, and, you, you know, then, then it's likelier that you don't like intellectuals or elites and it's, you know, likelier that you have sort of lowbrow cultural appetites and thereby uh, it's likelier that you are, you know, kind of made of weak moral stuff. And this isn't just gathering from that one piece he wrote. It's gathering from mm -hmm. other pieces he's written as well about his experiences um, growing up in Texas um, as a, as a, uh, sort of outcast, it seems like someone who wasn't necessarily treated so well by the people he grew up with uh, in love. Yeah, he, he draws upon his own experience of growing up in poor circumstances a lot sure. in his writing to justify his 
belittling of people who grew up in similar circumstances. Right. And, and, so, it, and he treats every anecdote he has as evidence. Right. And and and, and, he, and that's why I appeared in his piece, um, because I, I sort of stand in in the piece for the um, detached, aloof, cultural, coastal elite um, who overvalues the underclass and and speaks highly of them despite having no connection to them, which is funny because I was born and raised probably a few miles from where Kevin was <laughs> in Texas. <laughs> oh, are you from Texas too? Did we not cover this? Yeah, this is weird. I'm from, I'm where from, are you from? Born and raised in Arlington, Texas. Oh, wow. Yeah. Well, you know, I'm from Austin. Neither of us have strong Texas accents. No, I don't. I don't. I, uh, I, yeah. uh, but I, I was born and raised there. My mother's family is from Louisiana. My dad's family is from Hillsborough, Texas. Um, and so I left to go to college when I was 18, but that's where my roots are. That's where my family still lives now. And it's where my husband is from. We went to high school together. Um, so, uh, and it's sort of yeah. weird. I want to, I want to point out though, that Kevin Williamson, again, he sort of holds up this idea that like good, it is good to be intellectual. It is good to have gone to college. It is good to be, have facility um, with uh, science and learning. Yeah. But when it comes to proving his thesis, he falls back on anecdote and not data. Like, <laughs> well, but, so this is this is what I was talking about. This is a category error he's making, where he sees sort of cultural appetites as a synonymous or identical to morality, but he's mm-hmm. wrong. It's okay if you like lowbrow things. There's nothing morally wrong with liking country music and reality television and going mudding, ATVs, uh, NASCAR. There's nothing morally wrong with that. There's nothing morally wrong with those people. And and that's not um, that's not something that I say, you know, because I'm part of the great white minstrel show. It's something I say because I'm Christian. And you can look at scripture <laughs> And you can see that there's there's no guidance there as to what cultural appetites you should have. And I hasten to add um, that even if you say— You know, well, it is that the Bible is actually curiously—so um, much instruction about so many things, but it does not tell you what TV shows to watch. No TV, nothing about pop music. Yep. <laughs> um, nothing no about No arts, really. I mean, like, accent. it celebrates art in sort of a general category, and there's some nice poetry in there. But yeah, there's no, it certainly uh, celebrates beauty. You know, that's certainly a fact. But when I, when I take Kevin Williamson's lead and I look at cultural elites, these people are no more virtuous. Well, in fact, we're all fallen. Right. That is in, that's definitely in the Bible. Certainly. And, and you, you know, later Christian theology, you get this great phrase from St. Augustine, the massa damnata, the the damned mass of humanity. (laughs) Um, And and he does not distinguish for very good reason, sort of Roman aristocracy um, from underclass people. They're all, you know, equally morally um, weak. And and if you look at the sort of materials coming out of cultural elites that Kevin Williamson seems to praise, and he's a big theater guy, he enjoys the theater, um, he, he likes intellectualism, you know, none of that's morally superior. Mm. The Marquis de Sade was an aristocrat. <laughs> well, the, the whole <laughs> argument, which is, you know, basically about the undeserving poor, like that right. is his, his uh, piece is part of a whole edifice of conservative thinking right. that is, a, that, that is, based on the idea of the undeserving poor, which does have some obviously Protestant, um, you know, thinking in it. But I would not, I personally obviously separate it from my interpretation of what, you know, uh, Christianity is. Uh, and it, it we, is such a strange argument because 
it seems to take for granted that the rich are somehow better. They never say this, right? No, no, like no. The argument, the, the argument is always just that the, the poor somehow deserve it. They make, they make bad choices. They make immoral choices. Um, their poverty is a result of these bad choices. And they might imply and even they might say and the people who are better off, they are they rarely say rich. Right. Right. It's just the better off make better choices. But if this is all true, then shouldn't rich people not make bad choices? Well, right? so I mean, like, here, here's the here's the problem with how Kevin Williamson, I don't know um, how he's eval- I, I don't know what kind of moral system he's using. I, right. I realize. Well, it actually, it's weirdly racial. It's well, it's so highly racialized. Thing. That's for one. But but the reason I think, you know, in this classical conservative moral framework, what it really is, is an individual, uh, individualistic utilitarianism. Mm-hmm. And, and all that yeah. means is you're a good person if you're able to ask nothing of other people. And so rich people are good by nature of the fact that they are, you know, quote unquote, self-reliant, that they don't impose on other people. uh, They don't ask anything of anyone else. They are independent. And then people who are dependent, who need other people, you know, that's a moral wrong because to assert your needs and obligations on others is interpreted in that framework as a moral imposition. It is morally wrong to impose your needs to create obligations for other people because it limits their freedom. This is not conservatism. This is a thoroughly modern uh, way of thinking about morality. And it certainly has not a lot in common with Christianity. Um, Christianity emphasizes the interdependence of all people and the pleasure and privilege of having obligations to others and meeting them even in excess of what they ask. So, you know, Jesus says, give to all who ask. Um, that's why the, the the obligation of charity, not just material charity, but generosity of spirit and more uh, is so emphasized in the Gospels. Um, and so I, I don't see people who need things from others as being morally worse. Now, you can say, and I think this is what Kevin's getting at, is, uh, well, people become poor because they make bad moral decisions, like having sex outside of wedlock and so on. Um, rich people also have sex outside of wedlock. <laughs> they just um, don't have as many consequences for it. They don't have as many consequences for it. They have more uh, resources for dealing with the consequences. That would be childbirth. Um, they can, you know, utilize contraception, abortion, and so on to avoid having to raise the children that result from that. Um But, uh, you know, my husband has done work on this success sequence that they all, you know, David French in some columns and Kevin Williamson appears to think along these lines, um, that if you do these few things, if you wait until marriage to have children, if you finish college, if you get a job, et cetera, et cetera, you, you know, the chances that you'll be in poverty are next to nil. My husband has stripped all this data apart. And really all that matters is if you have a full-time job. Mm -hmm. Um, If you have a full-time job, you probably won't be poor. Most people who wind up extremely poor, um, and you can look at my husband's research on this, either live with someone who is disabled or are themselves disabled or can't work for some reason. Um, And so again, even by, you know, even by the system in which uh, unfair imposition of your needs on others is an extreme moral wrong, I think they would make an exception in the case of disability, but they don't look closely at who the poor are. They just imagine and, a mythical poor person in their mind. You know? And again, I want to, this is very explicitly linked to this horrible new tax plan that we're debating. Right. Um, I don't know if you noticed, but in uh, the taxes, um, what is the word I'm looking for? Uh, write-offs, right? Yeah. Yeah. Um, they would strip uh, the tax code of write-offs for uh, student loan debt, um, medical expenses. Right. And adoption expenses. Right. Which... My God, (laughs) 
I mean, the other two were also bad, but that one I was kind of like, wow. No, like, there's nothing classically conservative about that. It's not yeah, trying to you guys encourage good habits. Really kind of literally people are telling people to go fuck themselves. Like, yeah, I mean, it, it, it's, <laughs> it's colder than that. It's not a, it's not a punishment uh, for poor people. That's almost a knock on benefit. It's just that it's a, it's just a big check for the rich, right? I mean, that's all it's yeah. all about. It's uh, it's wealthy people getting wealthier. It's the only, And I was going to uh, say, you're, yeah. you're not, you know, he's not wrong or you're not wrong in this analysis of saying that what they're really lauding is um, independence and utilitarianism. Yeah. In preparation for, for this discussion, I was looking at psychological studies of the rich. Yeah. And it turns out they are much more utilitarian and not just in uh, self-sufficient ways. But in selfish ways. Yes. Like yeah. the rich are less likely to give money to the poor. The rich right. are less likely in um, psychological experiments, less likely to give help to other people. Right. More likely to cheat on games. Mm-hmm. Um, more likely to uh, disassemble about uh, their own, um, you know, earnings. Like in all these weird, you know, like in classroom psychological exper- experiments, it's the rich who actually perform the most poorly on what I guess most people would consider mor- moral grounds. Right, right, right. And because, and this is something I always emphasize in my writing, it's something I emphasized in my response to Williamson's piece, is that the decisions that allow you to make and amass lots of wealth are not the same thing as virtuous decisions. They're separate categories. And I, I know that's hard to think about because we think about getting lots of money and being able to take care of yourself and being independent as a straightforwardly virtuous thing. But I would argue, you know, it well, might careful be with your we there. But yes, <laughs> we, you know, Americans <laughs> or, or moderns or, or you know, however you want to put it, yeah. um, you know, it, at least that's a prominent thread of thinking. Um, but but I would argue that no, that, that, that it's absolutely not the case that decisions that allow you to make and amass wealth are necessarily virtuous ones. As you point out, cheating helps a lot, <laughs> um, you know, coldly disregarding others, um, being extraordinarily self-interested. Um, these are all things that help you make and amass wealth. Um, and, and they're not virtuous things. They're not things that should be encouraged. With the holidays almost here, who has time to go to the post office? I rarely have time to go to the post office, period. And I just don't like going to the post office. And during the holidays, it is a zoo. So what can you do? Use stamps.com instead. Stamps.com brings all the services of the U.S. Postal Service right to your fingertips. Buy and print official U.S. postage for any letter, any package, any class of mail using your own computer and printer, and the mailman picks it up. Stamps.com makes it easy. They will send you a digital scale, which automatically calculates the exact postage, and they'll even help you decide the best class of mail every time. Print postage any day, anytime, because unlike the post office, Stamps.com is always open. I use Stamps.com mainly for that reason. Um, uh, My own biological clock does not fit the regular workday. I'm often up working late. And uh, also, I'll be honest, Christmas somehow always takes me by surprise. And uh, as it does a lot of people, and that makes the post office especially um, uh, hellish to use. So stamps.com is really great for this particular time of year. Maybe you think you don't need stamps.com most of the time. Even if you only use it for the Christmas rush, you will be grateful that you have it year round. And right now you too can enjoy stamps.com with a special offer that includes a four-week trial plus postage and a digital scale without long-term commitments. 
this will get you through the holidays. And then you'll realize how easy it is to use and you will use it after the holidays. Avoid the craziness of the post office. Go to stamps.com, click on the microphone at the top of the homepage and type friends. That's stamps.com and enter friends. Stamps.com, never go to the post office again. I want to give Williamson one tiny piece of credit, which is one diagnosis um, in his piece, which he notes that it is true that many people who write about these things don't know that many poor people, right? Yeah, sure. That is actually a failing for us, I believe. Um, It's also just true of Americans in general. This is a little bit product of our circumstance, right? Yeah, it's a highly stratified society. Highly stratified society. And that is also why people take such, I think other conservatives take such pleasure in being able to cite Kevin, a bona fide former poor person. You know, Um, look, I know a poor (laughs) (laughs) Right, right. Well, I'm married to someone who used to be homeless. Well, and I also like, I mean, I I talk about this a fair amount, like because I'm in recovery, I know a lot of people who have lost everything. Sure. You know, Um, and and some who have built back, you know, built lives back up and some people who have not. Yeah. You know, Uh, and the thing is what I think, again, this is if you look at some of the sociological and psychological research on this, um, it is this disconnect that causes people to think badly of the poor. Right. Knowing a poor person actually tends to make you more sympathetic. <laughs> right. And, you <laughs> Not know, less. I understand that people who have, you know, like I say, particular cultural appetites will say, well, you know, people who live in poverty, people who live near or below the poverty line have very different cultural attitudes and a- appetites than I do. They consume different things. They find different things funny, interesting, attractive. And I understand that's a difference. But again, it's a result of extreme stratification. You know, we could equal things out. We could at least set egalitarianism as a goal. Uh, And you might see some of that polarization between classes dissipate a little bit. You could have, you know, sort of mass um, leisure and entertainment that appeals, you know, across the spectrum. But that's that's less and less the case. And I, I, I do think it's very unfortunate. I'm not sure Williamson thinks it's unfortunate. I think he just wishes that um, nobody liked things that he considers tasteless or déclassé. Um, but some people have actually put forward um, that we are putting the cart before the horse if we say that, you know, what ha- needs to happen is, um, you know, poor people need to become, change their tastes, right. right? And then we will like them more and then we might give them more money or they might deserve <laughs> to be helped more. Right. Um, something called the Ben Franklin effect, which uh, you may know about. Yeah. Uh, is the idea that it is after we give people something. Yeah. We start to believe they deserve it. Yeah. Well, it's, so, a, it's a very human thing that once you're invested in trying to help someone, it's very hard to walk away because now a part of you is in their cause. Um, so it, yeah. in the, under this theory, it's if we were more generous. I'd actually be curious. I bet there's actually case studies to look at now that, um, you know, we have states that have expanded um, uh, Medicaid. Yeah. I wonder what the attitudes towards poverty are in those states, if they've changed at all. I think it would be fascinating. There's There's a great short story, I think, by the author Lydia Davis about... Um, the author finding a, a caterpillar, a bug, in her room. And at first, she's just going to ignore it or swat it, but then she decides she'll take it outside. And then when she's walking down the stairs with this little bug in her hand, she drops it, and she spends a lot of time on the stairs looking for it. A few minutes ago, you didn't even care. You were going to swat it. But once you've tried to help, it's much harder to completely withdraw yourself emotionally. Um, and and I, I think that's a very important 
very important aspect of being emotionally interconnected in society is having stake in these other communities. Um, and I, and I wish that that were something that we could do, you know, in a, in a widespread way without a lot of paternalism. Um, but I, I see it as somewhat rare. Although again, I, I feel like we have an opportunity for it um, with things like Medicare for all yeah, or absolutely. universal basic income. Absolutely. I mean, like I, I actually yeah. got into a debate with uh, Love It um, when we did a Pod Save America show in Ann Arbor because someone asked universal, universal basic income and he said, well, I think there's value in work, right? Uh-huh. And I was like, I think there's value in people. Yeah. <laughs> Well, I think there's, yeah, there's value in work. Um, but it's interesting that people militate against a UBI be saying there's value in work because if there's value in work, that people are going to do it for the value in it. They're not going to do it strictly because it's how they get their income. Right. And um, also, what do you define as work? Right, right. Yeah. There are lots of domestic work. There's unpaid non-labor market work. Mothers and who stay at home emotional work. work yeah, and exactly. there's t- caretaking work. And right. there's art, too. Right. And um, that's very important. Which, it, I, you know, you and I both do something that, you know, we wouldn't do, um, uh, we could probably earn more money doing something else. <laughs> yeah. Well, I mean, uh, that's certainly, uh, that's, that's <laughs> certainly the case for you. Possibly yeah. the case and, for me. And, <laughs> and we, we, we do this thing because we love it. Um, and I think there you know, were places where there has been universal basic income. People do, um, do more leisure and art consumption, you know? Yeah. Uh, and, and yeah, you would think that someone like Kevin Williamson would think that's a good thing. <laughs> Right. I mean, especially insofar as, you know, having more leisure encourages, you know, admixture of the classes and it encourages creativity and public beauty. Um, this is sort of Oscar Wilde's argument for socialism um, is that once we have, you know, full socialism and no one is bound by, you know, their hours are not strictly bound to wage labor, they'll be able to produce and be creative, self-express. Um, but I mean, uh, I think that the, uh, the appreciation of aesthetics, again, is is dependent in his case, and in a lot of cases, he's not alone in this, on that framework of independence. Um, you're, you should do this. You ought to do it. It's the pinnacle of existence insofar as you don't impose or obligate anyone else. But you read the stories of great artists, and they have all been very happy, I think, in most cases, to impose themselves on others and to ask for support <laughs> and help from others in their lives. <laughs> Again, like you wouldn't be much of an artist if you didn't ask for it. Right. Know? I mean, and, and like a lot of these people are, are very interesting personalities that require a lot of support. Um, so I, I'm interested in how that would play out in his, uh, I wonder if he has a special category, like should there be a social pension for geniuses um, just so they can sit around and be creative and, and be elite tastemakers. But I don't know. <laughs> I don't know. I don't and know. I wonder if he considers himself a genius that would qualify it. I don't know. It. I mean, I don't want to rag on him personally. I mean, I'm sure no, he's... No, but uh, yet, I... I, mm. <laughs> I you know, I, I can't speak to his experience. I, I think it's bizarre You're that I showed better up. Christian than I am. <laughs> I think it's weird that I showed up in his pieces, like, um, an elitist coastal liberal because I'm from Texas and I'm like a devout Catholic mother at 26, married to my high school sweetheart. I have a lot of cultural attitudes that are not in fact, coastal or elite. Um, and, and Well, like I said, yeah. for someone that seems to value, says that we should be valuing, you know, scholarship and, and research, he doesn't seem to put a lot of it into his work. No, yeah. I mean, I think, again, he likes the, he likes the language of scholarship mm-hmm. and research and he likes the gravitas. But I think that's quite different than submitting to the findings, Mm. You know, and so you can get upset that people don't like the gravitas or don't respect the authority that comes from, say, the academy. 
Um, and that seems to be the kind of gripe he has. But at the same time, you can kind of ignore the actual substantive findings while saying, yes, yes, but you should generally be in awe of the kind of learned worthies. Um, and again, this just is not the kind of thing that, that bothers me personally. I'm not interested in taste that much. I mean, I, aesthetics matter quite a lot and they especially matter in our current political moment. Um, but that's just not my area. So, yeah, I, I, I found the piece sort of riddled with category errors. <laughs> <laughs> and I think we've about worn out our discussion of it. Um, I've I, I given it um, far too much of um, my own mental real estate. Uh, I mean, I've probably thought about this piece way, way more than it deserves. Um, but then again, it is sort of a reflection of some foundational thinking. Well, yeah, and I, and I don't think it's a bad thing. I mean, this is what liberals and leftists are always accused of never interfacing with uh, material that opposes their views. So, I mean, I'm, I'm highly supportive of reading the, the intellectual products and engaging with the arguments in good faith of, of people on the opposite side. That's why when I thought about Kevin's piece and other pieces that make similar arguments, he's certainly not alone. Um, I just, you know, okay, well, let's break this down into a matrix of sort of taste and means and morality and and really engage the substance. But I think that's a very healthy tendency, really. It's better than just saying, no, thanks. I don't like this. And hey, and you know, that's the whole idea behind the show. Yeah, it's fantastic. So, so thanks for being on, Liz. We will have you back, hopefully, some other time, maybe not to just deconstruct Kevin Williamson articles. Hey, it's a good cause. And I, I love talking to you. So thank you so much for having me on. And that's it for the show this week. If you have an interest in the articles that uh, Elizabeth and I were talking about, all those links will be in the show notes, the extended show notes, which are hosted on crooked.com. And of course, if you want to get in touch with the show, we are at crooked underscore friends on Twitter. And the email address of the show is with friends like pod at Gmail. Next week, we will have actually a special episode. Uh, I don't know if the right word is celebrating uh, the anniversary of the election, but we will be looking at the aftermath of the election. It's a special two-part episode all about Hillary and her legacy. And then after that, we'll be back with regular shows, which need your input. If you have a question about politics and relationships, you should definitely write us. Again, that is with friendslikepod at gmail.com. As usual, super fans, please go to iTunes or Stitcher or wherever you get your podcasts and rate and review us. It helps other people find the show um, and it does something to the Apple iTunes store uh, rankings, um, which are more important than they should be, is definitely for my ego. This week, hmm, middle level difficult, I would say. I mean, there was definitely some good news that made it easier to bear. Um, but we tape on Thursday afternoon, so who knows what tomorrow brings. I hope your Friday um, was better than it was last week, and we will see you next week. Want the same expert advice you get from the pros in the store while shopping online at DiscountTire.com? Meet Treadwell, your personal online tire guide that matches you with the perfect tire for your vehicle. Get your best match in one minute or less with Treadwell by Discount Tire. With my busy life, I use shipped same-day delivery to keep up. When I need a jar of extra creamy peanut butter delivered, I know my personal shopper Amber will come through. And if it's not on the shelf, she asks them to check the back. Shipped. Delight in every delivery. Learn more at shipped.com.